Hello from Brooklyn, I'm Brendan Hart, and welcome to Super Cities, a no BS deep dive conversation about the people and trends moving cities forward. All views expressed are my own and do not reflect our sponsors or partners. Let's get into it. On this episode of Super Cities, we do a deep dive with Jennifer Perazzini, founder and CEO of Neurovation Labs, a biotech company. We cover innovation in healthcare, government support for researchers, and where the biotech market is headed. Jennifer earned her PhD in behavioral neuroscience at the University of California, Los Angeles, where she studied the mechanics underlying PTSD. Let's hear from Jennifer. We'd like to start with a little bit of context. Where did you grow up and and what was your pathway to becoming a neuroscientist? Yeah, so I grew up in New York in the suburbs of New York City. You know, I I always was really interested in science. You know, I was good at school, um, always wanted to go to college. um, But really, uh, the passion behind neuroscience grew really after 9-11. So in 2001, I lost both my mother and my grandfather within weeks of each other. And all this happened immediately after the September 11th attacks. And as a New Yorker, I watched so many in my town lose loved ones. Um, And what really struck me was how everyone around me coped um, really differently with these traumatic events. Some thrived and channeled their frustrations into productivity. And then some also floundered and lost their way and went awry. And so by the time I went to college, I really wanted to focus on on neuroscience and what in the brain allows us to cope well and, you know, be resilient to traumatic events and what uh, in the brain can go awry and cause us to lose our way. So by the time I reached grad school, this is what I wanted to focus on. And my doctoral work with my co-founder, uh, Dr. Michael Fanslow, focused on understanding such mechanisms, uh, really an eroded model of PTSD. And we felt the model was so strong and the data was so translatable that we decided to form a company to bring our research to market. So that's really how Neurovation Labs was born and, and really my background uh, as a neuroscientist, I'm, I'm able to translate uh, well now. Cool. Can I ask you just a clarifying question about sure. the about your pathway and your, and your course of study. Sure. Did you know exactly what part of neuroscience you were you were most interested in or was that a a, a process of of um refinement as you went through these these different academic programs? Oh no, I had no idea. I mean, I was the first <laughs> scientist in my family and in college I probably changed my major five times to figure out what I actually wanted to do. When I went to grad school, again, I I had this passion to figure out uh coping mechanisms and um I just went down the list of of good grad schools in behavioral neuroscience and um I came up with UCLA, which is where I went. Um lucky enough I got in and got to work with uh, Michael. So Neurovation Labs, let, let's let's talk about the, the company, the model. But first, is it common for neuroscientists to become entrepreneurs <laughs> or is it more common to, to go work in sort of academic research or at, or at a university? That's a great question. You know, I actually never wanted to be a professor and have a lab in a university. It was just never my pathway. I always saw myself in industry and and doing business. But, you know, I'm not sure if it's common. I think 
this is more of an alternative path. But I think it's actually a great path for for neuroscientists or really any science scientist because we are never short of ideas. And I feel like grad school actually prepared me better for doing this than say going to business school where I can learn to run a business, but you know, I have to come up with all these ideas or hire people that do have ideas. So yeah, that makes makes sense. So Neurovation Labs, when did you and your co-founder uh, start Neurovation Labs and what is, what's, the, what's the mission of the company? Sure. So we started officially in March of 2016. You know, what we aim to do is to revolutionize the way we diagnose and treat psychiatric disorders, starting first with PTSD. And right now, we're really something of a virtual company, a virtually integrated company. And we've kept our management lean. And we're pretty cost and time efficient because we work a lot with contract labs. So we don't have any brick and mortar. We don't have any real labs. We hire people to run the research for us. And being a scientist myself, I was able to pick out the best of the best. And they do a really great job. We're able to, you know, make sure we have quality assurance and quality control for for our products. So what problem is Neurovation Labs solving? Is is the problem that, that products are coming to market too slowly or that the, the research is not keeping pace with, with the market or, or some combination of both? Well, really the problem that we're trying to solve first is, you know, better diagnostics and treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder. That's that's our main focus because right now there are zero objective diagnostics for PTSD. It's really just subjective checklists of symptoms. And um, really the, the treatments out there are, are marginally effective and they're really meant for other disorders such as depression. So we... Interesting. Right. So what we have is the first potential biomarker for PTSD. This is something that we have discovered. Um, It's basically a protein increase in the fear center of the brain. And so we are now leveraging this discovery to develop both the first objective diagnostic and a companion treatment. So PTSD historically has been diagnosed through through what mechanism? Really just checklist of symptoms. We have the diagnostic manual. It's astonishing, isn't it? it? It really is. And this is common for really every psychiatric disorder and mental health problem. We think of it as this black box and it's taboo. Um, but really at, at the core of every psychiatric disorder is a biological mechanism. And so that's our, our end goal. That's our long-term goal. Mm-hmm. So we're considering our discovery really the the biological underpinning, or at least one of them, for PTSD. So this is a, this is a hard science approach to to starting with with PTSD, and you're you're using what sounds like business model innovation to decrease overhead to distribute. Uh, research and work. Is it? Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. Um, we've been extremely efficient with both money and time. And it's not a common model, although I think it's becoming more common, um, just because we can save so much money and and time and, and labor, you know, working as a, a virtually integrated company. Let's talk a little bit about the the actual company building process. So you started in March 2016? Correct. Is that right? 
sort of separate from the 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 science and research components talk a little bit about the the biotech sector what you've learned about building a distributed biotech company sure yeah you know the thing about biotech is that it's so risky and investors try to minimize their risk uh, with with any investment really um but i find that biotech is pretty closed off when it comes to neuroscience and uh, central nervous system companies, CNS companies. Um, and so we are pretty innovative in, in that we, our main focus is on the brain. And, and this, isn't, this isn't common right now. Right now we see a lot of oncology, um, a lot of antibody work, and we're just now starting to get back into CNS and, and even um, more into individualized and personalized medicine. When you say getting back into, into CNS, was this a large market at some point in the past and then, and then sort of biotech resources ended up focusing on oncology and some of these other, these other issues, but now you're seeing an emergence in, in CNS or is this as a market within the biotech community, a largely uh, sort of underdiscovered or or underinvested in uh, component. So the field of neuroscience is, is pretty new. So really only during the 21st century did neuroscience become recognized as its own academic discipline. And, you know, the brain is still so poorly understood. So CNS divisions with big pharma have been shut down. That um, they call it the brain drain because it's just so expensive to keep up with these programs. Um, the thing about neuroscience drugs and, and and drugs that target the brain is that the programs are just much more expensive and much more lengthy um, because CNS and psychiatric disorders are diagnosed by checklists of behaviors. We have this inherent extra step of having to go back into an animal model to see how these drugs influence the behavioral symptoms and make sure that we're, we're treating those. Um, and it's not necessarily like cancer where we can study tumors and, and tissue cultures. So, you know, reasons for, for closures have been failures, um, of, of, of drugs, um, and also stricter FDA regulations for CNS disorders, and also just uh, very generally insufficient understanding of mechanisms underlying brain disease. So, you know, companies are now starting to get back in, into neuroscience. Um, really, the biomarker market is, is, is growing very fast. And you know, if if they're not opening programs, they're seeking licenses and partnerships. And, and this is really because neurological and psychiatric disorders significantly outnumber diseases in other therapeutic areas. So it's it's really a huge market. It's a multi-trillion dollar market. Right. So so that's it it seems to me to be a large and growing problem within within the the, the sort of healthcare healthcare space. This idea of of psychiatric uh, diagnosis and treatment. So so it's it sounds it's surprising to me that there's the sector is sort of is so heavily tilted towards behavioral uh, indicators instead of instead of um, biomarkers. 
like I said, biotech is investors are they're, they're risk averse. You know, that's that's really how it is with any investment. You want to de-risk and um, focusing on psychiatric disorders where it's the brain is just so largely unknown, you know, biological mechanisms, molecular mechanisms, underlying disorders. It's, it's really starting from scratch in a lot of ways. The, the field is growing in some capacity. There's been a lot of focus lately on, um, on pain and again, starting to seek these genetic biomarkers at the very least. Um, and also Alzheimer's in the aging population. Those, those are big right now. Interesting. I just want to demystify a little bit the the term PTSD. Sure. It it feels like uh one one of these terms that's that's poorly understood or has some unfair or unnecessary associations with it. So what what is PTSD for the for the layperson and what do most people get wrong about about PTSD? Sure. So PTSD is post-traumatic stress disorder, and it is a psychiatric disease that occurs after a traumatic event. And we see symptoms such as hyperexcitability, avoidance of cues surrounding the trauma. Um, And, you know, I think because it's portrayed in the media so heavily, you know, in the newspaper or on TV, I think a lot of people get it wrong and it becomes a joke sometimes like, oh, something scary happened to me. I have PTSD now. Um, But it really is just an incredibly serious problem that is so difficult to to cope with because it does interfere with with daily life function if, if left untreated. And often you hear PTSD associated with the military. Yes. Or, or service members, but it seems to be a, a term that is is much more broadly applicable to anyone who goes through uh, through a traumatic event. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So PTSD, besides traumatic brain injury, is the only disorder that requires provocation. So we need a traumatic event, and who is susceptible to experiencing a traumatic event? Everyone. Mm-hmm. Yes. The military is a huge population that we want to serve. Um, and there's just, there's so many other ways in which someone can develop PTSD. Natural disasters is huge accidents, um, terrorist events like 9-11. Um, and mm-hmm. actually a huge, um, a huge population is actually women. Women actually develop PTSD at twice the rate that men do. and the the biggest cause is sexual abuse and sexual assault. Right, I I could imagine I could imagine that's the case. Um, and, and so PTSD is 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 subjectively diagnosed at 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 this point. And at what is a sort of standard course of treatment for um for PTSD at at this point? Right now, after diagnosis, um, we can either do psychotherapy, which is essentially talk therapy, exposure therapy, um, which requires you know exposure to the traumatic event um, and cues related to the traumatic event. And the only FDA-approved drugs right now 
uh, for PTSD are antidepressants, which really they're, they're treating another disorder and, um, and, and really just target individual symptoms or we call them symptom band-aids. Right. So it, it is the, is the idea that post-traumatic stress disorder is a, is an underlying condition and one manifestation of that may be some, some, um, uh, some version of a, a depressive state and, and, and so the medication is being prescribed to the action instead of the underlying sort of cause. Is that a way to think about it? Not even that. PTSD and depression are two very different conditions that get lumped together, but they yeah. do share some overlapping symptoms. So we can see depressive mood and anhedonia in PTSD. So an antidepressant will treat that symptom for PTSD patients. And it really, like I said before, it's really only marginally effective. That's, that's interesting to me. Okay. So, so PTSD is where Neurovation Labs is starting. Um, but there seems to be a, a large, uh, spectrum of, of use cases that, that need to be sort of more directly linked to, to, to biomarkers. Talk to me a little bit about how does this this part of the the biotech industry how is it financed? Is there a, does the federal government cover some portion a large portion of uh, research and development? And then there at some at some point there's a transaction uh, or or a transition to what we would normally think about the sort of traditional investing community um, or is does this field have its own um, sort of unique financing model? You know, I'm trying to navigate this whole system myself um, because we are so early stage. Um, I yeah. actually, it's it's hard to even seek advice because we are so early stage and we're not still linked to any uh, parent organization. We're all on our own. Um, and, you know, again, uh, Investors always want to de-risk, and it's so risky to invest in a preclinical company, right? So there are biotech angel investors and um, investors, VCs that say they, you know, care a lot about neuroscience. Uh, though I feel a lot of these early stage investors don't necessarily understand um, how long it takes to, to get a return on investment. You know, the government is definitely a, a, a route that we could take, but it is exceptionally hard to to figure out which group or organization to tap into. There's there's so much money there. Um, it's just really up to the company to to navigate that system. So at our earliest, we we did close a very early seed round um, in the fall of 2016, and so that's kept us going. Um, up until now, and and we are now um, seeking uh, funding for the next stage of our experiments, which will get us to clinical trials. Got it. And how long is the the clinical trial process uh, on sort of on average? What what are, what are we what are we talking? Just sort of contextually, how long are we talking to to standardize through this this approval process? 
So traditionally for a new drug, it will, it could take years from inception. Um, and especially in neuroscience, again, we have this inherent extra step of having to go back into the animal model and making sure it's changing, not just the brain, but behavior. Um, so it does take a little bit longer, especially for a CNS drug. For us, actually, we have two products. So our first product is a diagnostic. Um, it is essentially a radiological tracer that we can use in imaging, such as uh, PET scans. And so we have developed this tracer. Basically, it's something that you inject IV. It goes into mm -hmm. the brain and detects our biomarker uh, in a brain scan. So our tracer actually um, has the ability to potentially be expedited through the FDA approval process because we actually have two time points for our tracer. The first being after a quick phase zero EIND and phase one tracer safety study, at which point we can actually just make sure that our new molecule, our tracer, has appropriate target engagement. And then after that, we can then seek approval for the tracer being an actual PTSD diagnostic. And our, our treatment, though, it, it is pretty standard. Um, it's our, our long-haul project. Um, we're at the stage now where we've developed a really great assay, and we are about to run our first high-throughput screening, which means we're going to start to identify drug candidates. That's exciting. Yeah, <laughs> really excited. How does Neurovation end up being fast-tracked through the, the FDA process? Is it a... Is it a sort of validation mechanism or is it uh, based on, on sort of what you're focusing on? How does that how does that process work? For our tracer, because it would only ever be delivered in microdoses at a subpharmacological level, we have the ability to potentially fast track. Got it. So um, it, is that does that just mean it's sort of low risk enough where you, you're you, you don't need to meet some threshold for sort of more risky treatments. Is that fair? Right, right. The the tracer safety is is less of a concern. It's always a concern, but it's not sure. as if we're going to have to look at the maximum tolerated dose and and see major side effects. We shouldn't really see any side effects. Got it. Okay. So I'm interested in we we've talked about a few sort of seemingly points of uh, or challenges in the, the sort of process of commercializing biotech. Uh, one is is sort of the investment bottleneck, two is the, um, the sort of approval or regulatory challenge, three is the sort of getting to market. In your, in your particular space, are any of those challenges sort of most, you know, most acute in your in your phase? I think there's I think there's a, a ton of money in biotech. It's just how it's allocated is still this this puzzle we're trying to solve. Um, and I think, you know, because we're sort of unique in our business model and, you know, I'm a young CEO. Uh, this is really my my first role as CEO, um, and I was a neuroscientist beforehand. So, it's it's sort of this new, unique situation um, that 
to the risk averse investor doesn't look so good. Yeah, that, that makes sense. It's um, it's a challenge when there's not not an, a mature market that that can sort of accept you know, uh, a founder risk, right? Right. It's not sort of a standard, uh, tech ecosystem that, that, that will take the kid who just graduates college right, right. Um, and, and surround them with the appropriate, uh, appropriate level of support in terms of government financing is, is the challenge as you've experienced it sort of lack of information or, or that the government makes decisions on timelines that are totally incompatible with with startups, or is the is the sort of government market just too big to fully sort of understand or work through? So I think there are a few problems. So the timeline aspect is definitely a huge issue uh, for a company like us, a small startup that needs immediate cash applying for a government grant that may take a year to hit your bank account is not necessarily appropriate. I think also the decision makers don't necessarily have a strong biotech background. So while PTSD is a very important problem that the government cares about and wants to solve, they don't necessarily have the tools to figure out where to allocate their money. I mean, where do they allocate? So, what org, what agencies allocate money? Is this is this NIH primarily, and do they allocate funds? Do they route funds through university partners or or sort of established entities? Is that the traditional mechanism? Yeah. So, the government is even more risk averse than a typical VC, um, which is not mm-hmm. someone you necessarily think would be risk averse. Um, but the government, you know, likes to play it safe. So yes, NIH loves to fund um, university projects um, and tenure track professors and potentially partnerships. Um, not saying that that's exclusive, but that's typically the case uh, for for PTSD. The Department of Defense and um, the Department of Veterans Affairs. Uh, that this is really um, where we focus our time and energy. Um, but mm. you know that those are big entities and big groups, um, and you know it's it's very difficult to navigate. It's it's I have I have some experience in this space, um, and specifically around um, d- defense technology, but. The irony here is that the government feels comfortable financing a professor at a university, and that's a sort of reasonable first step, perhaps. But the second step is where there's there's vast challenges because that tenure track professor is almost never the person who commercializes the breakthrough. So you get you get a lot of intellectual property. At different at different levels of of development, but it ends up being sort of detached from the commercial market in some way. Right, it's definitely true. I think there's a huge disconnect between um, the government and industry and academia. Um, and I think this is really you're touching on something that I care a lot about. And there's such a huge disconnect between the government and the pharmaceutical industry. And 
the academics running the most basic research. Um, and I, I wish there was more crosstalk because we're really all trying to same, solve the same problem. Um, I think a lot of it does have to do with retaining IP. Um, you know, as an academic, the university just automatically owns your intellectual property and anything that comes out of your lab. And that's horrible for, for an investor, you know, and it's, it's horrible for anyone like me that wants to start, um, a biotech company, which is why I, I left, um, the university setting as soon as possible. To, to maximize freedom. Absolutely. Yes. Um, in some ways it, it's difficult because we start off much earlier than, than a lot of other spinouts. Um, but we have um, the, the freedom to, to do whatever we want to do, not in the constraints of a lab, and we uh, solely own all of our IP. And and that would not be the the case if you if you had a formal affiliation with any university. Is that right? Correct, correct. And not only that, you in most cases, um, not in all, but in in most cases, if you're uh, working as an academic at a university, you can never do a company full time. Um, that's also some of the issues surrounding um, uh, grants, um, small business grants from the government. Is that um, with money, you are required to to leave your your academic position. Interesting. And there's no sort of market mechanism, I, I don't think, that efficiently takes university-owned or controlled intellectual property and and takes it to market. Is that right? It's Yeah, it's, it's definitely difficult. Um, there are accelerators and, and incubator programs that try to help um, entrepreneurs uh, doing small, uh, small startups, but mm-hmm. it's it's still just this process that we're all trying to navigate. It's, it's very difficult. Yeah, it's a, it sounds challenging. A couple of final questions for you. Sort of zoom out a little bit. Take a, a wide lens of, of your market and your interest. What are some trends or innovations that, that you find most exciting in, in, in the neuroscience or biotech market? I think that precision medicine and individualized medicine is really just the greatest thing that we can invest in right now, um, whether it's CNS or cancer or, you know, any other disease, because we have the ability to take what we see at the diagnostic level and turn it into a treatment that's appropriate for each individual person. You know, with with cancer, we focus a lot on genetics. Um, So if a cancer patient has a certain gene mutation, we now know the exact drug that should be used to treat it. And that's really what I'm trying to accomplish in some degree here. You know, we see this protein elevation in in the brain. So now we can use our companion drug to to treat that protein increase and therefore the, the disease. Yeah, that, uh, and and what what was the breakthrough in in precision medicine? Has it just been an advancement of technology, or a body of research, or or the combination, or or some other factors? I think it's it has a lot to do with just the advancement of technology. I think the greatest thing that biotech did for a while um, is just 
put a lot of money into into tech. Um, the diagnostic technology, the imaging technology is so precise and has such high resolution now that it, it makes our jobs easier. That's great. That's great. Um, rapid fire questions. Where can um, listeners uh, find you online and find out more about Neurovation Labs? Sure. So our website is neurovationlabs.com. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And just another plug, we recently um, started really this public service initiative um, for people trying to seek the right information about PTSD written by scientists in a very digestible way. And it's called PTSD Authority. And you can find that at ptsdauthority.com. We're, we're always active on it. There's forums. It's, it's a really great website. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Jennifer Perizzini, uh, founder and CEO of Neurovation Labs. Thanks so much for taking some time with us. Thank you for having me. Thanks. That does it for this episode of Super Cities. Before we go, some real talk. Cities feel broken, too expensive, too crowded, too chaotic. So we created Super Cities to elevate the people and trends moving cities forward. This movement is just getting started. So please rate, review, and subscribe to Super Cities and tag us using hashtag Super Cities. Your support really helps, and I'm thankful for it. This is Brendan Hart and Super Cities, signing off for now.